you know by now that the dogs in my house wear Paco collars, and the newest addition is Stig's tan leather collar with brass fittings and turquoise stones. It seriously looks like the bay we bought our house on, and his smooth coat and long neck show it off perfectly. We picked it out in person at Paco's booth, and the staff helped us to be sure we got the exact fit and style that was right for him. I catch myself mesmerized by this collar when I walk him. How crazy is that? So get over to PacoCollars.com and grab a collar you'll be obsessed with, and don't forget to use the promo code COGDOG for free shipping. We've got a puppy. Puppy Elementary is my puppy training subscription service, and it's all about our new puppy, Watson. It's just $45 for six months of Watson's development and education, and you'll have indefinite access to the materials, so sign up anytime. Just go to www.thecognitivecanine.com and click the Puppy Elementary tab at the top of the page to register. Each week, you'll have access to multiple training videos and blogs, as well as constant access to the Puppy Elementary Facebook group, where you can talk about your progress with other students. Watson won't stay little for long, so join now. Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. We've got some listener questions today. You guys send me amazing questions via email, sometimes on the Facebook page, sometimes via private message to the Facebook page. And I love just getting on here and nerding out about your questions. So keep sending them. They are the best. So here we go. First couple of questions has to do with kind of regular dogs versus worked up dogs, kind of meaning... um, I don't really necessarily think we can draw a real line in the sand between quote-unquote normal and worked up, and that's actually coming up in a future podcast. But um, what these questions refer to is basically if we're talking about a quote-unquote regular dog, maybe not a dog that has trouble with over-arousal or kind of arousal-type behaviors, then the first question is, would you still train all behaviors to fluency before adding toys? And the answer is yes, I'm a huge fan of training behaviors to fluency with food and then adding toys to the picture. And that's kind of a generic rule. I wouldn't do that at all with a dog that didn't love toys um, or with a dog that was bored by toys. That's about my dogs who are insane for toys um, and toys bring a definite different arousal picture to the table. But more importantly, I like to train all behaviors to fluency with food because food simply is our most efficient reinforcer that we have. We can train faster, better, cleaner with food than we can with toys. The cleanest toy trainers that I know are probably doing a better job with their toys than most people are with food. But in general, we look at the average trainer, they're going to get much cleaner training, much more efficient training with food first and therefore less confusion with the dog. I also like to add layers of arousal as I go, so layers of excitement to the behavior as I go. So I like to start out with a reinforcer that the dog cares about, 
but does not see as high stakes or life or death. And then I like to build up. So the next question along those lines is, would you add arousal in earlier to a quote unquote regular dog? For example, more, um, you know, restrained recalls, restraints into a tunnel rather than kind of walk up or sit stay while learning. So this just speaks to that dreaded phobia we all have of having a slow dog. I am, again, I'm not a fan of amping dogs up in learning and I'm not a fan of pushing them for speed before they're ready to give speed. Um, I think that when we, when we think that we're amping them up and getting them excited, often we're actually just getting them really frustrated and we're building that frustration response into the behaviors and that's why things go so, so wrong when they do go wrong because the behaviors, the kind of feelings and behaviors that the dog has to fall back on are frustration-based rather than based in just kind of the joy of eating food, which is what I want all my behaviors to be based in. So moving on, just a couple of questions about scatters. Scatters are when I just drop a handful of food and I love them. You know, I do it all the time. It is a constant, constant thing that I'm doing is just throwing food. So does the size of the scatter matter? Bigger failure equals bigger scatter. So meaning the dog, um, a bigger failure might be that the dog, I don't know, barked and lunged at something rather than just failed to respond to a cue. The size of the scatter only matters um, as far as the results you're getting. So you want to observe and respond. If I throw three treats on the ground, that's going to be plenty of scatter for my dog, Iggy, because she's going to keep sniffing and make sure there's not any more, and she's going to be pretty soothed when she comes back up from that. Felix may need 10 treats on the ground to have efficient soothing, and again, that's just me watching him, watching his behaviors, um, and learning about him and his responses. There's no clear-cut answer there. But in general, it's not about the behavior they gave me before the scatter. It's about what I know the scatter is going to buy me afterwards. So I love this next question. For dogs that have a significant hunting instinct or have been taught to go to ground like terriers, can the scatter lead to more hunting? Or does this type of dog or or for this type of dog, is it really about training slash cleaning up the cue slash marker scatter equals eat the cookies that I provided on the ground and reorientate towards me? Really interesting. Um, I don't think that, so I believe, and I don't have anything too solid in my, right off the top of my head to back this up, but there is research on um, the seeking system. If you want to just Google the seeking system, um, you can learn a little bit about this, but all of them sniff, all of them sniff to hunt. So you don't teach a terrier to go to ground, um, for one thing. A terrier is born understanding how to go to ground you don't teach a dog how to hunt they already know how so you throwing food doesn't or shouldn't change um, their hunting behavior in any way shape or form so I would still scatter for those dogs and the dogs that are hyper sniffers the dogs that sniff a ton those are the dogs that benefit from the scatter the most which is very counterintuitive because people do not want to see the sniffing so they do not want to do a scatter and uh, they get very frustrated and I want them to actually throw more food more food and 
what happens is the dog starts to learn the pattern of you said scatter, so you threw a handful of food. I'm going to eat that food and I'm going to sniff. And if I pop back to work, that's going to be reinforcing for me. So it all comes back to making sure that the work is not confusing, highly reinforcing, easy for the dog to do, especially if you're going to ask them to do the work instead of things that they didn't need to be taught to do, like going to ground. So I hope that answers that question. Um, I took it the direction that I kind of thought of, but um, hopefully that's a good answer for you. So this is kind of an interesting question um, just regarding breed uh, tendencies. It's from uh, Chanda, I think. So, but what I, she says, what I'd like to hear is your thoughts on um, how much our expectations and goals for a dog need to be shaped by breed tendencies. So nurture versus nature. Certain breeds make certain activities easier because they've been designed and intentionally selected to be this way. I know there are individuals that are exceptions to the breed rules, but I'd like to think about stereotypical dogs of a breed for this. How realistic is it to expect training to overcome genetic predispositions? Is it even fair to the dogs to try? Um, and then she provides an example that she lives in the wilderness um, and wants to get a husky, but walks every day off leash. And it's very important that the dog is able to do that. So should she get a husky, you know, knowing that people talk a lot about huskies not being off-leash reliable? So really smart question. And my answer is basically yes. <laughs> Nobody's going to like that. Um, Here's the thing. Dogs all come with a genetic package and we are doing best if we're not fighting that genetic package. So if I want a dog to be a service dog, I am going to select a dog that was intentionally bred for service dog-like qualities, meaning unflappable temperament, um, very easygoing and laid-back disposition, and high interest in their human um, you know, lots of things like that. If I want a dog to do agility, I'm going to pick a dog that um, is very athletic in its body. It likes to move and it likes to move fast and it likes to turn tight because its body is designed to do so. And then also a dog that likes to work with people that was designed to um, take direction and work with a human just to make my life easier. You can always get the breed that you love and then try to go do the activity that you love together with that breed. And so many people can be successful at that and that's fine. But in general, we should be selecting dogs that fit our lifestyle because whether or not we can train out those tendencies um, is kind of irrelevant. You cannot train out genetics. They're going to be there. But what you can do is teach the dog alternative behaviors and you always can. But how difficult that will be is based heavily in uh, their genetics. So you want to consider your training skill and you want to consider what the dog is designed to do. So um, can you train a husky to walk off leash reliably? Of course you can. Is it going to be harder to do than with an average golden retriever? Yeah, it is. Um, but if the husky is the breed that makes your heart sing, then you're going to want to talk to breeders. Find one that does already walk their dogs off leash. If you find one that does that, that's your line. You want to go with them. They've got some traits that are helping that happen. In the same sense that um, 
you know, if you want a dog to do agility, of course, looking at lines of dogs that have done agility is not a bad idea. But look at it specifically. When those dogs have problems, what are those problems? When I'm looking for an agility partner, if the dogs have done agility that are in the line, which is not always, I want to see dogs that are, you know, I don't want to see the dogs with the best, best handlers. I want to see dogs with average or even below average handlers or trainers um, doing really well. And that's, that says to me that there's something great in this dog that's making it easier for them because it's not the person making it easier for them. And just disclaimer, neither of my dogs came from that situation. Felix's breeder is a great trainer. Um, and Iggy's breeder is a cattle rancher. But when I'm coaching other people on what to do, I think that that's probably the best idea. And that has turned out the best puppies for clients of mine. So... Coming back to, you know, how real the question, how realistic is it to expect training to overcome genetic predispositions or is it even fair to the dogs to try? That's kind of two different questions. The first one, is it realistic? It depends. You basically understand that your training skill has got to outweigh the strength of their genetic predispositions if you're going to ask them to do something that is against their nature. And then is it even fair? I think is the more important question. So I'm going to turn that to... One of my favorite examples, which is kind of a pet peeve of mine, which is um, keeping livestock guardian dogs as pets. So when livestock guardian dogs turn up in rescue and people are placing them in average suburban homes, I get really frustrated because those dogs have such strong guarding instincts. Um, They're going to want to walk a fence line and bark about it the entire day. That's what they want to do. That is not what a good pet dog does. A good pet dog can go on walks with you and lay on the couch while you're at work and, you know, maybe go camping on the weekends or whatever. Uh, Ride in your car (laughs) as you're doing carpool with your kids. But a livestock guardian dog is not that dog. A good livestock guardian dog is protecting its flock all day long. It's very vigilant. It does not take a lot of naps. It likes to walk a fence line. It likes to bark about it. It's a pretty loud animal. Asking them to live in a suburban environment where they're not allowed to do any of those things is usually a disaster. Now, I'm going to get all these emails about people who say that their livestock guardian dog is a perfect pet. Save them, you guys, because I'm sure there are exceptions. Of course there are. There always are. (laughs) But generally speaking, it's not fair. If you want a nice pet dog, you should get a dog from a line of nice pet dogs. If you're going to a shelter, which I think is great, still educate yourself on breeds and try to pick something that is the breed or mix of breeds that's still going to work for you. It is really, really important to get a dog that suits our lifestyle. If you've got a dog that finds agility physically extremely difficult, I don't think it's fair to ask them to do agility. If you've got a dog that would really rather sleep on the couch than go to obedience class, then maybe it's time to get a different dog that would like to go to obedience class and you can let that sweet dog lay on the couch and be a wonderful couch holder. I mean, I think that's a worthwhile endeavor for a dog. So, of course, we can. Training is powerful. Positive reinforcement is powerful. We can teach animals to do all kinds of things that go against their nature. Whether or not we should is the bigger question. And I think that for a happy lifestyle between you and your dog, it is always best to consider both of your tendencies. 
I know what I like in a dog. I know the types of dogs I like to be around. I know the types of dogs I like to train. So I try to pick those dogs as my pets. Um, and if I weren't so particular, I'd probably have a bigger variety of dogs, but I am particular and that's okay. Off-leash walking is a big, big part of my life and border collies tend to be pretty good at it. Um, it tends to not be too hard to teach them a recall. Again, blanket statement, but, um, it tends not to be too tough and they tend not to be so hypersocial that they run away to visit other dogs. Um, they work well for me in a lot of different reasons. So whether or not you're going to get a husky to go on your off-leash walks, I think depends on whether or not you can find a husky, um, that, comes from a line of dogs that is going to make that easy for you or whether you understand that you're just going to do the work and you're going to work hard and it, it may reach a point where you just come to a compromise with that dog and just as a side note if you like sled dogs but you want an off-leash companion you should check out the chinook which is c-h-i-n-o-o-k they are a lovely lovely breed that can do that with you easily so thanks you guys for your questions i absolutely love them i love answering them keep sending them over and we'll do more of these episodes Thanks for listening to CogDog Radio. If you have questions or suggestions, shoot them over to CogDogRadio at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like the CogDog Radio Facebook page. And until next time, happy training. Listener questions. Steven, cut that.